HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market, a dynamic leader in the quality food business, a mission-driven company that aims to set the standards of excellence for food retailers. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. I'm Dave Arnold, host of Cooking Issues. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Good morning. You're listening to In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Joe Campanelli, and today we have a very special episode. Uh, this is actually our 100th episode here on In the Drink. Yes. <laughs> uh, I remember it was two years ago. I was on Michael Harlan Turkle's show. Uh, I was a guest on the show. I had no uh, idea, I had no dream that I would ever actually host a radio show myself. And uh, we had such a great time. And uh, I, 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 after the show, got to chatting with uh, with Jack, the producer, and uh, they offered me a show. And I, I was very hesitant at first because I've never done this before. And uh, it has been such a great experience. I've gotten to speak with uh, some people in the industry that I, I really absolutely admire. It's it's such a joy to spend a half hour of my week uh, with talking with our guests and uh, and sharing it with you. So thank you so much for uh, for those of you who've been listening. And uh, I'm extremely excited about our uh, about our show today. Uh, today we have someone who is without a doubt an expert. Uh, in all things Chinese food and in restaurants in general and operations of, of restaurants. He's been in the industry since the 1970s, and he operates uh, th- really three of the, the most popular, um, most busy, highest quality, most amazing restaurants here in the city. It's, uh, it's Ed Schoenfeld from Red Farm. He's Red Farm in the West Village, right around the corner from Lartuzzi, Red Farm Uptown in the Upper West Side, and uh, and the newly opened Decoy. Uh, Ed, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks very much. It's great to be here. Really, really excited to have you. I remember when you opened the first Red Farm. I uh, is around the corner from Lartuzzi, and I uh, I went over and I introduced myself, and I had I had no clue who you were, the kind of experience you had, 
and I said, "Wow, Ed, it is." Uh, or I just said, "Hi, my name is Joe. I, you know, I have the restaurant around the corner. It's a pleasure to welcome you to the neighborhood. Congratulations, your your, your restaurant looks uh, it's beautiful. Um, what an improvement on, on that space." And you said, "Yeah, yeah, yeah um, you know, I've done this before. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, f- I feel pretty confident in this one. I have the greatest uh, Chinese chef around." And I was like, "Oh, this guy." A little, a little confident in himself, and it turns out you were right. Uh, God, boy, is the food great, great at our farm. Thanks so much. Um, you know, I own the restaurant and operate the restaurant, um, and uh, but more than being the proprietor, I am a fan of great Chinese cooking, and it's something I've been chasing after my whole life. And uh, it's you know simply something that's a great passion of mine, and it's really exciting to have restaurants where. I'm not only the operator, but a fan of of our chef and and the creativity and and the just plain delicious work that he does. Yeah, he is truly, truly talented. So tell us about how you got into the Chinese restaurant world. I'm sure this is a story you've told before. Uh, It's something that throughout the Jewish culture, we're all big fans. And I know Joe Campanelli, you might not think of my mom's side is uh, very Jewish. Uh, and grew up eating Chinese food, you know, my, my whole life. But how how did you specifically? Well, you get know, into I, I have heard um, many Jewish Chinese jokes. Obviously, they've they've all come my way, and um, you know, my my story is that I started cooking as a kid with my grandmother on Friday afternoons when I was eleven years old. And I went to a New York City private school where we stayed in school till five o'clock every day. And uh, on Fridays, we got off at 1 o'clock, and I, I would go to my grandmother's house. And when I was 11 years old, I already could work four or five crepe pans at once when she was making blintz wrappers. <laughs> um, five, six years later, when I was graduating from high school and starting college and kind of asking myself the question, what I want to do with my life, I really kind of quickly came to the conclusion that I, I loved food. I loved cooking. At the time, I thought maybe food writing would be a way to go. I got a job working for my local newspaper, uh, the Brooklyn Heights Press. I wrote 75 columns for them. Uh, the, the column was entitled Gravy Stains. And I started cooking every day and teaching myself about cooking. And I started taking classes. And I took a, a class kind of on a whim mm-hmm. with a, a lady named Grace Chu, who was the those days the doyen of Chinese cooking teachers in the United States. Um, her husband had been a famous diplomat, and her husband had been China's ambassador to Moscow. And Grace ran in the 1940s the Chinese embassy in Moscow and you know fed people like Stalin. She ran a staff. When she got to New York, you know, 20 years later, and her husband had passed away and she wanted to make a life for herself, she decided to teach Chinese cooking. She knew a great deal about Chinese food and culture, but not so much about the secret recipes of chefs. She wasn't the world's best cook. Um, but I, I learned a great deal from her. And it, it, the difference between what she did and what a really fine professional chef did uh, really sparked my curiosity. And I started setting up Chinese banquets for a hobby. And uh, unbeknownst to me, our immigration laws had just changed. And until the late 60s, Chinese were not allowed to come to the United States except on a tourist visa. Mm -hmm. Uh, But in the late 60s, that changed, and it sparked an immigration of fairly wealthy Chinese and a group of chefs, some of whom um, really 
were some of the best chefs of their generation and were trained to cook in China before the communist revolution. Uh, China went communist on October 1st, 1949. So in 1970, one of these chefs in 1949 was 35 or 40. This is 20 years later. These chefs were 55 or 60. There was a group of them who landed in New York City. I started setting up banquets as a hobby. And I set up, oh, a couple hundred banquets in the course of uh, maybe 18 months or two years. And when I repeatedly went back to the same chefs and asked them to cook for me, they kind of took me under their wing and started teaching me. And um, I realized early on that one of the chefs who, who was cooking for me when he wasn't cooking for me was cooking for David Rockefeller or for I.M. Pei. And indeed, this group of chefs I'd fallen in with were some of the great chefs of the 20th century. So was this your first uh, for-profit food service business, setting up banquets with great Chinese it, it, chefs? Well, that was a hobby. It wasn't for profit. Wow. Um, but... What it did lead to was a relationship with a restaurateur who was named David Kay, and we call it K-E-H was really his name. And I, I think that along with just one or two other individuals, he was responsible for introducing authentic regional Chinese cooking and specifically Szechuan cooking into the United States. I asked David uh, one day uh, if he were ever going to open a, I suggested if you were ever going to open a, a fancy midtown Chinese mm-hmm. restaurant and wanted to hire me as his assistant, you know, a white guy, um, that might be fun. And sure enough, four or five months later, he called me up, told me he'd signed a lease on 3rd Avenue and 62nd Street. He offered me a job as his assistant. We spent six months setting up this new business. And because I was the only Caucasian person there and I was a you know, fast-talking Jewish guy from New York City – um, he made me the host of the restaurant. He, he dressed me in a blue polyester tuxedo with a ruffled blue shirt. And oh, a blue I would have loved tie. to have seen that. Someone just asked me if I had a picture from that, and I, unfortunately I don't. And um, I had never worked in a restaurant before. I'd been a New York City private school kid. I you know, expected to become a doctor or a lawyer or an Indian chief or something, and my parents expected that as well. And I ended up dropping out of NYU where I had a full scholarship, gave up my scholarship, and went to work uh, with David. And because I was the English-speaking person, they put me at the front door of the restaurant. It was a restaurant that was called Uncle Tai's Hunan Yuan. It was a Hunan-style Chinese restaurant. It was one of the first two Hunan restaurants to open in the world outside of China. And um, we opened on January 7th, 1973. You were not close to being born yet. And... Um, Two weeks after we opened, we got a review from the New York Times, and we got a four-star review. Wow. So I found myself in my very early 20s uh, running the dining room of one of the hottest restaurants in the country. How many four-star New York Times Chinese restaurants have there been since then? Um, I think that there haven't been any. I think there haven't been any. Right. Um, there, In my lifetime uh, that I recollect... The Shunli restaurants, uh, when they were young in the 60s and early 70s, were really the first Chinese restaurants in New York City market to get a four-star review. And the first Mm -hmm. restaurant that did that got a review from Craig Claiborne. And it's been long gone. It was called the Shunli Dynasty. It was at 48th and 2nd. They spun off another restaurant called Shunli Palace, on, which still exists on 55th Street. And then yet a third restaurant, which I actually set up and opened, which was the Shunli across from Lincoln Center, which opened in 1980. So, we're, you know, this is a long time ago. And um, 
you know, it's an interesting idea that no no Chinese restaurants have merited a four star review in forty years. Um, but you know, there's a reason for it, and and a lot actually has to do with the the emigration uh, that I mentioned and the communist revolution and the fact that in China, once 1949 came around, um, Chinese chefs really the top ones who, who typically worked for patrons. Mm -hmm. uh, they really weren't able to practice their craft. And a group of them left the country. There was kind of a diaspora of them. And when they could, a group of them came here. That's how I got my education. And, you know, I'm I'm very aware of the fact that I was exposed um, as, quite, as quite a young man to a level of Chinese cooking that was very rarefied, that few professional chefs in China at that point could experience because it wasn't it was no longer permitted to cook that way or to eat that way maybe on the very highest level maybe you know Mao Zedong or Zhou Enlai or the premiers of China had really great chefs who were still allowed to cook luxurious food but by and large you know until the cultural revolution wound down and mm -hmm. small capitalism small amounts of capitalism started creeping into the society um there, there weren't restaurants as as we knew them. They're not certainly not fine restaurants, and it resulted in kind of a dumbing down of the of the cuisine. Certainly, that happened here. Uh, great chefs died off in the seventies, and they didn't really have students that could pass on their their secrets to. And certainly, not in a systematic way. Now things have changed completely, and you know there's a, a lot of disposable income in China, and when people have that kind of income, one of the first things they spend it on is on it's restaurants. Food, yeah. You know, so for instance, we're always looking to find talented chefs to come work for us, and it's not hard to find chefs, but to find really talented ones uh, here, the labor pool's kind of thin. It used to be that chefs would like coming here, they make a lot more money and send it home. Yeah. Now, they can make more money by staying in China. And staying close to their Amazing. families, so it it makes the the you know the whole dynamics of, of the of who the best Chinese chefs are it really changes. And them. even for a period of time in in the restaurant industry in America, if you wanted to earn your chops, you worked at a busy restaurant in New York City, right? Maybe San Francisco, but really you worked in New York City. Sure, there's nothing now, like learning from a great chef. And now you can have a great chef in so many different cities. There's so many different foodie cities with outstanding restaurants. You kind of don't have to come to New York anymore. A you know, uh, interest in food has been um, gigantic change over my lifetime. And as a young person in my 20s, starting off in, in, in a four-star restaurant, I kind of fantasized about what it would be like to have other people like me who had a similar passion and being friends with them. And, and it was hard to identify those people. There weren't so many of them. And now the industry's just exploded. You know, chefs are big stars. They're, they're like movie stars. And, and if you're a proprietor of a restaurant, you, you get that's, a, you know, like Red Farm, that's very popular and very successful. And, and, and I'm a fan. Yeah. <laughs> you know, where when the customers leave, we don't worry about getting press. We love getting press. But what we worry about is giving our customers a really good experience, giving them delicious food, giving them knowing hospitality. And that's what, you know, builds legs and keeps our business strong for a long period okay, of time. As someone who is such 
an expert on uh, Chinese foodways and culture and history. Um, Red Farm is not an, a direct representation or an authentic representation in any way of, of China. How do you kind of take those to your, your side where you know so, so much about, about Chinese culture and translate that to something that, I mean, is admittedly, everyone, everyone loves it. It's super, super popular. And, and where, where did that kind of crossover? Well, I, I think you have to go back to the word authenticity and, and you need to find the context for that. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we're pr- kind of proud of the fact that we're not, uh, we're not focused on being authentic. We're focused on being delicious. And in our case, very, very finely crafted. And the skill set that we work with in our restaurant is clearly classical Chinese cooking. But it's it's moved to a little bit more modern place. Something that I think was lacking in the Chinese food world for a really long time still is. But it's something that's changing now. And uh, so we're concerned about uh, taking our ingredients, working with really good ingredients, mm-hmm. fresher, more farm-to-table things when they're available. Um, you know, we, we are a Chinese restaurant, so some of the foods that we work with, you know, growing rice patties, and we don't have too many local rice patties around here. So we can't always be locavore, but we certainly are seasonal. But it, it's really about um, having a very high level of craft. So, for instance, our, our head chef, Joe Ng, is a dim sum chef by by training. And his skill set is... Wait, so d- just to interrupt you, I remember when we f- the first time we met, you told me that Joe had a thousand dumplings in his repertoire. Joe has is, about a thousand dumplings in his repertoire. Really? <laughs> it really it You know, what's amazing is that I actually have a sense of how deep that goes and that he concentrates on maybe 15 different forms in our restaurant, maybe 20. And, you know, the other 880 he has in his hip pocket. And he, he kind of breaks them out when he feels like it. But, you know, he makes a hundred, for instance, he makes a hundred different dumplings that are shaped like a hundred different animals. And um, in our restaurant, we, we you know, we have dumplings that look like stingrays. Yep. Uh, they're filled with duck and, and vegetables, and they have a little crab pincer as a tail. The Pac-Man. We, ha- we have our Pac-Man dumplings. You know, I, the, I don't know if we should call the ghosts animals, but they're certainly uh, personifications of something. And, you know, what really happened in the, in the opening of Red Farm is that we started doing tastings, and we had the idea of using fresher ingredients and being a farm-to-table kind of Chinese restaurant. And when Joe started randomly cooking a lot of things, he said to me, you know, I really want to bring out dishes that when Chinese people are sitting there and the waiter's carrying the dish by them maybe to some other table, that the the Asian customer who's there takes a look at that dish and says, what's that? You know, it's like uh, they're excited to see that. Yeah. I, you know, since I've been involved in the business, I'll go into any kind of restaurant and kind of strut around the dining room and, and look maybe a little too hard at what everyone's eating. It's a great way to find out about, you know, what's going on. And... In our restaurants where we have a, a lot of communal seating, and sometimes it's a little uncomfortable if you put a party of twos sitting opposite each, opposite one another and they have parties on either side of them, then they sit down and they suddenly see uh, a dish come to someone and not far from them at the communal table, and it's a spring roll that's shaped to look like a palm tree or a flower, and they go, excuse me, what's that? And 
it starts a dialogue and it, it, it turns the there's a experience. playfulness to the food and it makes it makes you like it even before you taste it you're like right. this is enjoyable already right. it <laughs> looks fun and then it tastes you know if it only looked cool but didn't taste great it, it would be pretty pretentious but the fact that it looks really terrific yeah. and tastes really good um, it kind of goes to the spirit of the restaurant so we we try to be playful in the kind of hospitality we give our guests and uh, in the foods that we put on the table though I mean our, our first idea is to make food that's delicious and then that you know has a nice presentation and it's based on Chinese cooking but we're not reluctant you know when we make Pac-Man dumplings we have a Pac-Man and we have the ghost the ghost of the actual dumplings the Pac-Man is a I don't know. A, a it's like third a taro, of, right? It's actually a sweet potato. Sweet it's a, a big round, four-inch sweet potato disc, and dipped in a tempura batter. And they cut a little pie-shaped wedge <laughs> out of it for the mouth, and they put a little eye in it. Well, we want Pac-Man to stand up straight, and you know, we actually put some guacamole on the end of the plates, really there to hold the dump, to hold the uh, the the sweet potato face. But also, because it goes really well, when you have that crunchy tempura batter, you can dip it in the guacamole and it tastes good. It's obviously not authentic. But, you know, it's sensible. First time I had that brought me back to our first days at, at Delanima. And Gabe put avocado bruschetta on. <laughs> now you see avocado toast all over. It's very popular. And I was like, Gabe, what? Avocado bruschetta at, at Delanima? And that, that really started this whole dialogue about it's delicious, it makes sense, and why not? All right, we're going to take a quick break. And uh, it wouldn't be in the drink if we didn't ask you some questions about drinks. So <laughs> we'll do that at the second half of the program. Uh, we'll take a quick break. But we'll be right back. <laughs> has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Are you a locavore? Our Northeast Regional Forager for Whole Foods Market sure is. She spends her time traveling around the New York City metro area sourcing the best new or interesting artisanal and handcrafted local products for our purchasing teams at the local store level. Part of our commitment to our local suppliers includes assisting them with the process of getting their products sold at our stores. Whether it's suggesting packaging designs, pricing, or distribution methods, she's helping some of the area's best new products reach savvy shoppers at Whole Foods Market stores. Today, New York. Tomorrow, the world. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. And we're back on In the Drink uh, with Ed Schoenfeld from Red Farm and Decoy. Um, Ed, as a, a, it wouldn't be In the Drink if I didn't ask you some uh, some drink related questions. Um, we, we've had quite a few people on the show who either work in Chinese restaurants or are big Riesling fans, and it has become just 
de rigueur, like to have Chinese food with Riesling, especially if you're a, a wine person. I did it myself over the weekend. I had a, a delicious um, Kart Hauserhof 2004 delicious delicious with some chinese food um when did this start has this in your in your history of of chinese restaurants in new york did people always want to drink riesling with chinese food well i i you know chinese food has a certain amount of sugar in it and um not always but very very often and you know we're we're in the food and beverage business so we always have wanted to sell beverages and we make more money on our beverages and and you know from the beginning i you know i remember a product that i bet you don't remember but it was called wan fu and it was i do a, not remember you're a correct. marketing <laughs> ploy by one of the big uh, winemakers i don't remember who to put a chenin blanc in in a bottle calling it wan fu designed for chinese restaurants and it gave them something that was, you know, not bone dry, that was herbaceous, that was grassy, that could hold up to, you know, Chinese food. And certainly um, Rieslings, whether it's one with a drier finish or, you know, German Riesling that's fruity and more like an, an you know, an Auschleser or something that would go well, like with foie gras or, you know, the way yeah. Sauterne would. I mean, those things work with, with uh, our flavors. And so we have a, a number of, of different things like that available in our restaurants. And, um, you know, we're doing the New York Food and Wine Festival. And, you know, we, things we have picked out for that are oh, an Alsatian Pinot Gris. Um, oh, if there, I, I am coming to your New York Food and Wine Festival. Um, it's a dumpling and Riesling. Right, it's called yeah. Dim Sommelier this year. Yes, you with Josh Wesson. Yes, Josh um, does all our wine, and he and a, I are, are real buddies. He's and, a friend of the show. He's been on, he's been on the show. A good friend of mine. Um, how did how did that uh, friendship come about? You and uh, and Josh? you know, I think we don't remember. Like we've just <laughs> known each other for um, probably twenty five or thirty years, and uh, I've always been really fond of Josh and. And, you know, I have a reputation in the industry for being a bit of a teetotaler. So if you ask me what I want to be drinking, it's going to be uh, um, fresh-pressed watermelon juice or um, we, we have this great, great um, white peach flavor that comes from Japan that we mm -hmm. mix with some jasmine tea. But So I've, I've often just referred to Josh and kind of let him have fun with our food and with his wine selections. And... You know, we, we have things like, you know, Lombruscos that are frizzante that, you know, go really well. And, um, you know, uh, you know different things. Uh, right now, everything's so ex exploded in terms of, of what's available there. I mean... And you're kind of taking it to another level with your bar program at Decoy. Well, you know, Decoy's been about for us about um, trying to build a bar business together with a Peking Duck restaurant. Mm. And uh, we've we have a group of bartenders there that are you know kind of the type of bartender you'd see in one of the mixology joints that have you know proliferated throughout our industry around the country. And we we do everything fresh. We make my, my chef actually complains about the, the large volume of fresh fruit and vegetable that we use that he thinks is put on his food cost because we're we're making fresh juices every day and and. Um, just you know ex extractions and fresh ginger ale and i can relate to that to that issue <laughs> right. yeah so um you're uh, even doing a a duck fat washed cocktail yeah we we call it sitting down to dinner and uh 
we take the fat that we we are rendering off of our Peking ducks, and we have a, a special kind of uh, custom-made bespoke uh, duck oven where the ducks hang down. They, there's a round uh, little bar, and they, we hook them off that bar, and then there's a central heat source, and it comes up along the side of the ducks, and uh, it, it gets enables them to get particularly crispy we take that duck fat we mix we mix it with bourbon um they hang out together for a couple of days we chill the the the, the mixture the fat rises to the top we take it away and we're, we're left with this bourbon that has uh, you know that little je ne sais quoi that little extra whole flavor component to it and then we we um we mix it with uh you know some some um sweet and tart mm-hmm. some some citrus juice and we shake it up and um we put a little egg white in and we get a real foamy head and then we we have a little stencil of a duck decoy and we spray red wine on the white foam and it comes to the table with you know this, this yeah, that duck is decoy fun. on it that's almost a uh <laughs> it's like a new york sour duck version 2.0 you know it actually people love it 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 goes well with our food yeah that sounds awesome you know we have another cocktail that's spicy and that has comes with a cover and we put smoke in there and when you uncover it the smoke you get the scent of smoke Mm -hmm. coming out and um you know, we some of the playfulness that we did in our food in Red Farm, we've done with our alcohol program in Decoy, and and also with our food program down there. And um, you know, we keep the bar open till two in the morning. Uh, we actually have snacks available. Up when you first night. opened, it was just open. The, the open time was later as well. Is that still going on? What are, what are the hours of Decoy? Uh, well, Decoy opens uh, at five. Okay, and it stays open till one forty-five. To, we have a two o'clock license, so that the way things work in New York City now is when you go for a liquor license, the, the community board wants you to close early, and they say yep. they they try to you know give you a ten o'clock license or a twelve o'clock license. Some of us have four a.m. licenses in locations, but these days they're not so great, and so we have yeah. a two o'clock license. That's and pretty. It's, that's pretty strong. And they ask you, are you going to have a DJ and a dance floor and, and all? Yeah, these, we you know we don't have like, room for that. So. Well, we were planning on having a DJ and a dance floor, but we'll give those two things up if you let us stay open till two. You know, we, <laughs> we, we have a, a stereo system that would uh, be perfect for, for that, actually. It, it's, um, you know, a little on the overbuilt side. But, you know, we we have people who have parties there and they want to have some music. And, you know, it works really well. So just this year, China became the largest consumer of red wine in the world, past, surpassed Italy and surpassed France, which were prior to the, the two largest consumers. Has Josh ever tried to put a Chinese wine? And I should say also most of the wine that they're consuming is domestically produced. Certainly at the very high end, uh, that's mostly imported, but uh, it's over 80% of the wines domestically produced. I've never had a Chinese wine. I I, I wouldn't imagine that uh, there's tons of very high-quality Chinese I wines out there. I, I, obviously, I see tons of, of alcoholic beverages from Japan. Yes. And we, you know, we 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 sell you know good quality sakes, but um, I haven't seen any. No one's been trying to sell us a, a wine that's made in China. Um, but I'm very aware of the fact that, especially high end Chinese customers, are very interested in drinking red wine. And in recent years, you know, 
traveling around Beijing or Shanghai or other cities in China. And, you know, you certainly see that in evidence. Yeah. And something that I've always noticed on your list, and maybe this has changed since I've been there last, but is that the, 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 the wine lists kind of skews towards the less expensive, uh, mostly very less. I mean, imagine you have, especially in the West Village and Upper West Side and these high-end customers coming in who could spend lots and lots of money on, on wine. But has that been a conscious decision to kind of keep everything it, it, below? It, ha- it has been. You know, we, we want our restaurant to be very approachable. And it's that approachability um, is a precept that we have throughout our business. You know, when you think about um, uh, the pop- the popularity of our restaurant, which is you know just fantastic from my perspective you know you, you, one of the things that I am very aware of is how our center of the plate proteins are things that are are very easy you know Chinese food is known for using every part of the animal and a lot of esoteric things and duck webs and goose intestines and fish maws and but when you come into red farm we are excellent cooks but we're not trying to make goose intestines excellent you know we're about very approachable understandable things like you know we have a great steak we're really good at marinating and grilling food and we serve things like you know striped bass and sea bass and salmon and shrimp and noodles and dumplings and pork chops things that people are not put off by but then we do it, do it with a visual, often a humorous, whimsical twist. Mm-hmm. And the real twist is how delicious the stuff ends up being. So, um, you know, our wine kind of goes along with that. You know, our wine is approachable. It's appropriate. Uh, uh, Josh is, uh, you know, Josh had his own retail businesses where it was about him selecting things that were modestly priced yeah i think at best sellers everything was under 15 or 25 dollars like you know i think it depends what year you were talking but yes yeah, <laughs> someplace in, in in that world and i mean we do have um we've gone through a few changes i mean we have customers who come in and would like to have something special you know which uh, i mean it could still be inexpensive and special but often you know they want you know you have a, the guest who wants to spend money, and we do now have you know some some bottles like that hanging out. Okay. And if you ask us for a list of them, we'll we'll produce another list. I think that's a good. That's and a good I, yeah, I mean, I like it when our customers can spend more money because especially they want to. Yeah. You know that. I mean, it's not like you're forcing them to do that. Now I have to ask uh, uh, about this. Uh, my, my girlfriend Alyssa and I recently saw the the. Tribeca Film Festival premiere of uh, the search for General So. Oh yeah, and cool. we're we're as I said before, we're we're big fans of, of Red Farm, and and uh, she has even instilled in me more of a love of Chinese food uh, in the in the last few years. But what was that experience uh, like going through that that documentary? You're, you're kind of tapped as as this Chinese food expert that you are, uh, and you're featured very prominently in in the film. You know, it, it came about in a very backwards and funny way. Um, the filmmaker did a video of me about three years ago for the New York Times when the New York Times was reviewing Red Farm. And it was a, a much more extensive interview than ended up being on the Times website. Mm-hmm. He actually used that footage and helped uh, included it in, in the movie, The Search for General Tso, and I wasn't even aware of it. 
And uh, I got a uh, an email one day, you know, remember me? I did this video with you two and a half years ago. Well, how would you feel about being a prominent character in this movie? And in fact, you're already the prominent character in the movie, and the movie's about to debut. And um, I, I didn't quite... It took me actually a few weeks to quite get the context and understand that, oh, this guy taped me for the New York Times, had all this extra footage and included in this movie. That being said, you know, I showed up um, and I, I walked on the red carpet at the Tribeca Film Festival and I, I really had a lot of fun with it. And, um, you know, I'm sorry it didn't make it into general release. I, I, I hope that it, it, it does still. I, I think they've been looking to do that with it. Wow, I, I wasn't aware that it, it, it didn't, but really great film, just super informative. And I think that, that everyone has had General So's Chicken. You know, anyone well, who eats chicken. Well, it, the, the amazing thing about the, the, the whole story of General So's Chicken is that the restaurant that I referred to earlier in our conversation mm -hmm. that I opened in 1973, Uncle Ty's Hunan Yuan, was actually a restaurant that came about because uh, David Kay, the gentleman I worked with, had opened some Szechuan restaurants. Suddenly that exploded, and he wanted to go back to Taiwan and look for a new concept or a new regional cuisine. And another restaurateur, a chef named T.T. Wang, who was the founder of the Shum Lee restaurants, had the same thought. And in 1972, each of these restaurateurs, who were rivals, not knowing what the other was doing, each went back to China actually to Taiwan, to Taipei, and look for a restaurant to copy and bring to New York. They each found the same restaurant, and they each searched for chefs from who had worked in this restaurant, who knew those recipes. They each brought over chefs, and they each opened restaurants that had virtually the same menu, and each of the restaurants got four stars, and they had nothing to do with each other, except that they were both copying the same restaurant. Now, the, to complete the circle here, the restaurant that they copied was a, a, a restaurant called Peng Yuan. Peng was the name of the chef who owned it. Mm -hmm. Yuan man, means garden. And Chef Peng learned to cook in China in, in the 1940s because he was the chef to the governor of Hunan province who was a famous gourmet. And when the revolution came about, Chef Peng went to Taiwan. And after a few years, he got some money together and opened a restaurant featuring the banquet-style dishes that they had prepared for the governor in Hunan province, who was a famous uh, gourmet. Well, this restaurant, and we're talking about the 50s, mm -hmm. this restaurant became one of the hottest restaurants in the community. And it was Chef Peng who first introduced General Tso's chicken. And what's interesting is that when Chef T.T. Wang from Shamli and when David Kay, the restaurateur that I worked for, went back in 1972 to Taipei to find a restaurant to copy, and they found Chef Peng's restaurants, they each brought back General Tso's chicken and put it on the menu. And the chefs of each of the two New York restaurants interpreted it in different ways. And it was actually Chef Wang, T.T. Wang from Shamli, who took this dish of chunks of kind of crispy dark meat in a spicy brown sauce and took the flavor profile from a tart sauce to a sweet tart sauce, which is actually the way the dish is made, you know, all over the industry now. And um, so when you're talking about the search for General Tso's chicken, even though there was a General Tso who lived in the 1800s, 
um, as they said in the movie, I don't think he was known for liking chicken. You know, it was just a name that they took and they they assigned it to this dish. And it's really the version that Chef Wang um, evolved here in the United States that became wildly popular. And Chef Pong and his restaurant that opened in 1954 or 53, mm-hmm. I, I have the dates off for possibly. The amazing thing about I don't think anyone's going to call you out on that. <laughs> well, but Chef Pung is still alive. Amazing. He's about 100 years old. And his restaurant is still open. And his kid, short, you know, his kid, his son, um, runs, they have a couple of restaurants in Taiwan. And um, the son is now well into his 70s. And I was lucky enough to go to the restaurant not so long ago, about three years ago, I was in Taipei, and I, I went to the restaurant that was kind of the, 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 the seminal restaurant that helped evolve a bunch of dishes. One of the other dishes that came out of that restaurant was crispy orange beef, which is also, um, we're talking about dishes that over the last group of years in the United States have sold billions of it, dollars. The amazing part about the story is, is really once those dishes got to the U.S., how they just became pervasive in, in such a short amount of time, in a decade or so, right? They went, they went from being unknown, uh, not even invented dishes on some very nice restaurant menus to, to becoming icons. Yeah. To becoming icons. It's crazy. Now, I have to ask you one last question because we're already way, way over time. But just uh, uh, where, where do you like to eat Chinese food in New York City? other than Red Farm, where I, I, need to, I need to know. Well, you know, I'd like to go to a little Cantonese dinner restaurant in Brooklyn, Chinatown, called Lucky Eight. Lucky Eight, mm-hmm. okay. And, I'm taking notes. And, uh, you know, the Nanjing Bun House on Prince Street in Flushing has good soup dumplings. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of the big Cantonese dim sum restaurants in Flushing are pretty good. You know, unfortunately, yeah, we can- have... Cantonese, and Liz always, uh, even just this morning, was going on, she's like, ah, that, that dim sum at uh, Chinatown Brasserie, which you were mm-hmm. a part of, was really the, some of the best dim sum that, that she's ever had, and, and she spent time in Hong Kong. And it, it is some of the best dim sum. I mean, Joe, that, Joe was a chef there, Joe Eng, my partner yeah. in Red Farm, and he's a, you know, he's a superb chef. I mean, there's no two ways about it, and and he's, you know, pretty creative. Uh, we took him, actually, to the Basque region in Spain, and he got a chance to eat the food of, you know, Adria and, and some of the, the the more modern molecular chefs, and and I think it was very inspiring for him. It, it he was creative already, but it showed him new directions, and he started things things like spherification and you know sous vide cooking and you know a whole more modern approach to food all right that's going to be our next show we're going to talk about <laughs> the modern good. approach we're already way over but ed thank you so much it's uh i'm so so happy that you're you're the 100th show really i'm such a big well, fan uh, of the thanks restaurants for inviting me it was fun to be here um and i i want to give a big that uh, big shout out a big thanks to aaron uh, and Jack and uh, Alex Moskovitz, I hope you're listening. Uh, and Jory Morales, who just who just brought us some uh, rosé champagne to to celebrate. Thank you, Jory, and uh, especially thanks to all of you for listening. Um, this has been it's been a, 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 a fantastic 100 episodes. I hope that we get to do a hundred more. Um, thanks again. This has been our hundredth episode of In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store. 
by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 non-profit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>